Well, you can turn to Romans chapter 7. That's where we will be in a while. This morning's sermon is on the relationship between the law and the gospel. Law and gospel, a beautiful union. And our key words for our worshipers in training are law, gospel, and sanctification. If you've been with us for a while, you know we are in the middle of a series called Life Together, and we are looking at three elements of our life together as a body of believers. The first we discussed was community, and now we are in the middle of talking about truth, and we will end this series in several weeks as we look at mission. What is our mission? So as we talk about truth, we started last week discussing authority. The authority of God in all of our lives as the ultimate authority, the authority of His Word, and the authority of the church and of one another in the lives of believers. And so from that, we laid a foundation that we turn to God's Word and we turn to God as our ultimate authority, and all that comes from that commands our Obedience, And so, appropriately from there, we now this morning will look at the law and the gospel. This idea of authority and the relationship between the law and the gospel, both of these things are foundational to what we believe and teach here at Ephesus Church. They are foundational to our confession of faith. And so... It's vital that we understand how all of this works together. From the outset, I want to mention that in large part, this idea of law and gospel was one of the primary issues of the Protestant Reformation. What is the relationship between the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ and the law of God? The greatest foundational principle of the Reformation was that men are justified, made right before God, saved by the grace of God alone and by faith alone, without works of what? The law. So this obviously raises a question then, if we understand that foundational principle from the outset, we are saved by grace, through faith, apart from works of the law, it begs a question. And Paul answers it several times in writing his letter to the Romans and the Galatians, namely, why then the law? What is the importance of the law in the life of a believer if we are saved by grace through faith apart from works of the law? How do we understand that? Well, many Christians would argue that since the law was fulfilled in Christ, it is no longer applicable to Christians today. It would simply say that Christ fulfilled the law, therefore the law has no bearing on a Christian's life. Many other Christians, while most would not say it, live their lives as though the law stands alone and is the defining factor in one's salvation. I'm going to to argue this morning that each of these ideas has the same problem, and that is too little gospel. To say that the law is not necessary for the Christian life, or to say that our Christian life is based solely upon the law, both of them end in the same place, that they 
have a great misunderstanding of the gospel. Too little application of the gospel. So as we're looking at the beautiful union between the law of God and the gospel of Christ, they are each crucial to understanding what Christ does and doesn't do in our salvation, in our justification, and our sanctification, our progressive growth into godliness or Christ-likeness. Now, this is so important because it determines how we look at all of the Bible, all of what God is doing and what He requires of us. And misunderstanding this relationship has very detrimental effects. But before we turn to the text, I think it's important that we work out a few definitions. There's a lot here, so pay close attention and hopefully we can all follow along. Now, God's law has been viewed historically in three different categories. And I'm simply summarizing from chapter 19 of the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, of which we hold to. Three divisions of the law. The first is the ceremonial law. This is the law given to the people of Israel regarding worship and sacrifices prior to Christ's coming. And at the coming of Christ and His death and resurrection, ceremonial law was done away with. Because Christ is the once for all sacrifice, perfect in every way. Thus, there is no longer a need for bulls and goats and rams and their blood on the altar each year for atonement or No need for food restrictions and circumcision and festivals and all of the ceremonial laws that we read about in the worship of the Israelites in the Old Testament revolving around temple life. All of this is fulfilled in Christ who was furnished with power from the Father for that end. Now the sins of God's people no longer need to be rolled forward in the blood of bulls and goats. They were punished fully in Christ. Therefore, the need for ceremonial obedience is eliminated. It is fulfilled in Christ. Secondly, we have the judicial or the civil law of God. Now, this was the judicial code or the civil code under which the people of Israel were held in a theocratic society. In other words, they were not, at least initially, ruled by kings or democracies or dictators. They were ruled by God, by God's word alone. It was a theocratic governmental system. So the judicial law was that which instructed the Israelites regarding matters of legal obedience in the civil realm. So an example for today, our civil laws are things like laws regulating traffic uh, and the subsequent penalties of that. So if you're caught speeding or reckless driving, whatever those laws are that regulate that and the penalty that follows, or laws about bank robbery and the subsequent penalties from that, or whatever it is, these are a part of our judicial system. So very much the same way, the Old Testament theocracy was given judicial rules, judicial law from God in how to regulate in the civil realm. 
The Old Testament theocracy was destroyed initially by Babylon when the Israelites were taken into exile and finally by Rome under God's judgment. The Israeli state eventually expired, therefore the judicial law expired. And yet, though the judicial law has expired, contained within it are timeless principles of general equity and justice and goodness and righteousness. So the relevancy of the civil law does not pass away. The principles of it are applicable to the state and to the church and to individual Christian lives today. And so while the actual law itself may not be practiced civilly in our society. The principles of those law and the goodness and righteousness of those laws are applicable to us. And third, what we will focus on mainly this morning, the third division is the moral law. This is most specifically referring to the summary of God's moral law that we see in the Ten Commandments. Now, the Bible clearly distinguishes between the Ten Commandments and the rest of the Mosaic Law, the ceremonial and judicial laws. The unique position of the moral law of God, the unique importance is indicated in several things. It alone was spoken by the voice of God. It alone was written by God's finger on the tablets. It alone is placed in the Ark of the Covenant. It alone is accompanied by the terror of God on Mount Sinai. And it alone is ascribed in stone. That's where we get our phrase today. It's written in stone. The Ten Commandments are not an exhaustive and detailed treatise on the whole moral law of God, but a comprehensive and sufficient summary of it. Dealing with, as Jesus later summarizes in the New Testament, loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and the second is like it, loving our neighbor as ourselves. And Paul argues in Romans chapter 2 that God's moral law, the summary of which is the Ten Commandments, and yes, that includes that pesky fourth commandment, and we'll get to that in a few weeks, written on the heart of Adam, and subsequently written on the hearts of all men. This is also known as the natural law, because as man comes into this world, God's law is written on his heart. Therefore, that in and of itself, the fact that man is born into this world with God's law on his heart, is enough to condemn each and every one of us in the end. I'd love to go into that more, but we don't have time. Read Romans 1 and 2. This is what Paul is talking about in these two chapters. But this, in short, is why we proclaim unashamedly that all men everywhere are responsible for their sin and are condemned by it because they inherently know, as God's law is written on their hearts, that what they do is sin because God has made it known to them. And so even one without the special, specific revelation of God in the Bible is condemned without the gospel of Christ because God's law is written clearly on every man's heart. 
So Paul argues the issue is not whether or not no man knows what is sin, but rather the fact that man suppresses that truth in unrighteousness, eventually searing his conscience as to no longer be convicted of any wrongdoing in his life. So when the Bible speaks of one being without the law, speaking of the written law, not the law by which God measures perfection, which is the law written on our hearts. It is given to us from the beginning. So the moral law of God is binding to all men everywhere forever, whether they are Christians or not, and whether they have the written law of God or not. It is written on man's heart and is therefore to be obeyed simply because God has made it known to all men, beginning with Adam, and because as creatures we owe such obedience to our Creator. Therefore, unlike the ceremonial and judicial laws of God, the moral law of God is to be practiced today. Not just the Ten Commandments, but also the moral implications and principles of the judicial law as well. But the moral law of God is very relevant to us today. Is everyone tracking with the law of God? I hope so. There's a lot there. Now, the gospel. I just want to be clear as we move on what I'm talking about when I say gospel. And I'm simply going to use scripture to define this. Several passages. Romans 3.28 For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. 1 Corinthians 2.2 For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And Ephesians 2.1-10 And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the greatest summary of the Gospel in all the Bible. So the Gospel of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of what was promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15 in God's curse over the serpent. When God said, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you you shall bruise his heel. And so, his heel will be bruised. The cross, 
But the head of Satan will be crushed in Christ. And from that point on, all of the Old Testament is looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, which at his arrival would put the Old Covenant to bed. The covenant that requires the fulfillment of the ceremonial law of God and would bring rise to the new covenant, which recognizes Jesus Christ as the perfect fulfillment of all of God's requirements. Okay, are we tracking with that? So, it's like three semesters of seminary in ten minutes. Congratulations. Now, here's where Christians get often tangled up and confused and begin to argue and debate about these two issues. The law and the gospel and the relationship between the two of them. If, as the Apostle Paul writes, we are justified by grace through faith, apart from works of the law, how could it be that the law of God is still binding on man today? It seems like somewhat of a contradiction, right? That's what we're unfolding this morning. So I hope all of that was hopeful uh, and helpful and clear to us. And we're going to, to dig into those a little bit more now. Now, even a casual reader of the Bible can see that the Bible is full of commands and prohibitions and expectations telling us what to do and what not to do in our lives. Now, many conclude that these very rules or these very laws are their obstacle to faith. Many non-Christians, many skeptics would object to Christianity because they look at the Bible and they say, well, it's just a bunch of rules. It's just a bunch of regulations holding me down. And so I, I don't want anything to do with it. I am fine on my own. Well, there's a wrong understanding of God's use of the law. Now, to understand our relationship of the law of God, it's helpful to think in three categories. And I'd be remiss to not say I'm helped very much by this, um, by uh, Pastor Murray Brett. And he has a book on the law and gospel coming out very soon. Fantastic. One of the, honestly, one of the best things I've read in this, uh, in this realm in relation to this. Also, uh, very good work by John Cahoon in the 18th and 19th century and Ralph Erskine of the 18th century, all very helpful in this realm. So, to understand this relationship of the law of God with the gospel of God, it is very important to think in several categories. Now, as we look at the law and how we relate to the law, there are three things to think of. And I'll just warn you right now, uh, I have like a bunch of points and a bunch of subpoints and everything this morning. So if you're taking notes, it's going to be all over the place. I'm sorry. <laughs> now, there are three major ways that we will relate to the law of God. The first is simply disobedience. Now, obviously, it doesn't take much cajoling or arm-twisting to convince us that this is unacceptable. Parents discipline their children, bosses fire their workers, people go to jail, and on and on and on. Why? Because of disobedience. In other words, under no legal code is disobedience acceptable or tolerated. Anywhere you go in all of the world, if there is a legal code, it is expected that it is followed. And to not follow that is disobedience, and it is unacceptable. Therefore, under God's law, we certainly can conclude that this is the case as well. It is proven time and again through the Old Testament, right? I 
teach a class at Effingham Christian School with 7th and 8th graders. And right now we're walking through all the books of the Minor Prophets. Now the major issue in almost every one of the Minor Prophets is this issue of idolatry and false idol worship. And God is constantly beating them down about it, right? Oh, golden calves again. I've seen this before. Um, okay, exile. Oh, sacrificing unclean animals on the altar. Okay, destruction. Right? We see it time and again. It doesn't take long to see in the Bible what God thinks about disobedience. We see this in the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 2, God commands obedience. All in the garden is yours. Except, don't eat from that tree. And so what happens? They eat from the tree. They disobey. What is the result of disobedience? Punishment. God does not play around with disobedience. Listen, one sin, one sin caused the fall of all of creation. And as a result, all of creation is groaning in pain and longing for relief. One sin. God does not play around with disobedience. This in and of itself must magnify to us the importance of our obedience and the seriousness of our sin. By one sin, by the eating of one piece of fruit, all of mankind fell. God does not take disobedience lightly. Now, the second way we could look at the law is by legal obedience. This is the problem of the Pharisees in one regard. This is doctrinal legalism. Living under the law, believing that God's approval is somehow dependent upon our right conduct. One's method of earning salvation. This is the means of salvation that the world offers in all other religious ideologies. If your good outweighs your bad, if you have right external conduct, then you will obtain salvation. But we easily avoid this because we know very clearly that this is contrary to biblical teaching. However, what we are in greater danger of is practical legalism, which Paul defines in Galatians chapter 3 as trying to be perfected by works of the law. Galatians 3.3 says, Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? In other words, you've been set free in Christ and now you're turning back to human effort. You're turning back to the temple. It's what one pastor calls sanctification by vinegar. And it's our great problem in shepherding our own hearts and the hearts of our family and the hearts of one another. We have good theological minds, but we often struggle very hard because of our radically legal hearts. All of us have legal hearts. So the result is a failure to live in the finished work of Christ in the gospel. 
which at worst will lead us to pharisaical legalism. In other words, creating our own laws, insisting others follow those laws, and on and on that road goes. Maybe at best is a form of moralism. Expecting moral adherence to God's command without emphasizing the grace that empowers us to do so. We must recognize very quickly that God has a lot of demands on believers and apart from the grace of Christ, none of it's possible. And it's moralism that is false teaching to say otherwise. A third way we may falsely look at the law of God is called antinomianism. Antinomianism is a system of theology that is on the opposite stream of legal obedience. It means literally anti-law. The antinomian denies the binding nature of absolute laws on individual lives and behavior. So this teaching is that Christians need not preach or practice the Old Testament law, the moral law, because believers are saved by grace apart from works of the law. Thus, all of Christ's merits and all of Christ's works have completely freed Christians from law keeping. Now, part of that is right. With most teaching that strays from the Bible, part of it is right, but not all of it. Because what the antinomian is saying is that the law of God, as was given in the Old Testament, no longer has any place whatsoever in the life of the believer or the church. Now, you can see very quickly that this leads to complete license. To say that since we are under grace, the law doesn't really matter at all. And it may seem far-fetched to think that Christians hold to this, but there is a growing movement today in the church, and they're calling it New Covenant Theology. And there's some false teaching here in New Clothes. And while many Christians would deny this position, it is practically worked out in the theology of easy believism. Let me tell you, it it is rampant in the American church. This is the gospel of the United States of America. Easy believism. I'm saved, I've got Jesus, and that's all that matters. That is tragic. It is tragic to think that the Christian life begins and ends with the fact that we're saved. There is so much more to growing in grace. What happens when we say, I'm saved, I've got Jesus, and that's all that matters, and three years later, the doctor says, it's cancer? Where's your hope now? Because you have no foundation. Because you thought it was simply enough to be okay with, I'm a Christian, and I didn't pursue everything else in the Christian life because it just didn't really matter. An easy believism, an anti-law sort of position, 100% of the time leads to an unholy life. Because it is inconsistent with the teaching of God's Word. And to this, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 6.15, What then? 
Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Do we have the license then simply to do as we please? And it's okay because we're forgiven anyway. So I can go sin and live life as I please, not as God pleases, because in the end I simply get to say, well, I'm forgiven, so it doesn't matter. No one's perfect, so I'm not even going to strive for holiness. What is his response? By no means. Absolutely not. We cannot live our lives apart from the moral law of God because it brings us into this place where we simply say, well, everything's up for grabs then. I get to do as I please. We cannot go there. It is vitally important that we understand that God calls us to adherence to His law. And we will dig into that a little bit more. So I hope you're tracking with me thus far. I know I'm throwing out a lot more than usual in defining terms and positions, etc. But I think it's very important that we see that this relationship is a multifaceted deal. I hope you see that legalism and license are destructive to the gospel and they must be avoided. And so in order to do this, we must not overemphasize the law of God, but rather to see the law in its proper relationship to the gospel. Now, a helpful paradigm for us to understand this relationship is law, gospel, law. There's two uses of the law we're going to look at. Law, gospel, law. So the first law. It's important to remember that the law of God is not a set of abstract rules and regulations that God simply came up with because He thought it'd be fun to watch us try them time and time again and see us fail time and time again. The law of God is a reflection of the nature and the character of the Creator and the lawgiver Himself. So God did not give us the law to harm us or to burden us, but rather He commands our obedience for our good. Now, the law in the first part of our threefold paradigm of law, gospel law, is that which provides us with the understanding that we are sinners, that we are imperfect, and that we are unable to fulfill the perfect standard which God has set forth for us. So we'll now look at the text I had you turn to. Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 7. We're going to read to the end of the chapter. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, proceeded in me all ki- produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. 
Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh. I serve the law of sin. So Paul makes very clear here that he would not know what sin is were it not for the law of God. He writes in verse 7, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known what sin is. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law did not say, Do not covet. So the law, you see, drags idols from our hearts and exposes them for what they are. The law brings out the covetousness. The law brings out the lust and the greed and the murder. And helps us to truly see them in their secret hiding places for what they are. And without such exposure, man is stuck in pride and in self-righteousness. By nature, man is blinded by his love of self, right? We love ourselves so much. And we think of ourselves so highly, puffed up with confidence in our own abilities and our own righteousness, that we end up standing in judgment of ourselves. There's a problem there. Being our own judge isn't too bad, is it? Why? Because in my flesh, as I'm measured against my own standard, I'm not all that bad of a guy. Yet when measured against the perfect law of God, I instantly see the wicked nature of my own heart, the sinfulness of my sin, and the hypocrisy of my pride. This is what Paul is unfolding in Romans 7. As a Pharisee, remember, Paul has said that he thought he was a quite an upstanding guy, right? 
The Hebrew of Hebrews, upholding all the law, born in the right tribe, circumcised on the eighth day, so zealous as to kill those who worked against his religious order. But then what? You see, as a Pharisee, Paul saw himself as God-centered and just and holy enough. But when he rightly understood God's law, he knew otherwise. Now he is painfully aware that he has been holding on to his own self-righteousness and that now he needs to die to it. Notice also that Paul is saying that with this understanding that he also needed to die to the law. What does he mean by that? I thought we just said that he needed the law. Well, Paul is writing about dying to his works orientation in his life, to his legalism. He needs to die to his legal obedience. He makes the same argument in Galatians chapter 2. Go there. Galatians 2. beginning in verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And so in his own hands, Paul used the law of God wrongly. But now that he is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, God is at work in him. He comes to see the law in its proper spiritual sense. Paul was blinded with self-righteousness to which he needed to die. The law of God has compelled him to see God's righteousness in relationship to his own sinfulness. And so the Holy Spirit helps Paul to measure his righteousness by the proper standard, the moral law of God. So then he sees very quickly, it's no longer this matter of outward Adherence, but rather an inward transformation. If it was simply only a matter of outward obedience, then he writes in verse 21, the grace of God is nullified and Christ died for no purpose. If I simply need to keep myself from killing people and not committing adultery, then Christ died for no reason. It goes much further beyond the outward Appearance, it goes to the heart. 
It's not legal obedience. It is gospel obedience. So the first and very important part of our paradigm is to see how the law functions to awaken us to sin. In Galatians 3, Paul likens the law in the King James Version to a schoolmaster. The ESV says a guardian that drives us to Christ. It is in seeing our inability to live up to the holy perfections of God's law that we are driven to the gospel of Christ, to the cross. Our fallenness is exposed and our need for a Savior is made clear. So the moral law of God, first and foremost, drives us to the cross because we see we are not able to keep God's holy standard. The second part of our paradigm is gospel. So this right understanding of the law immediately draws us to our need for Christ. This is confirmed in Romans three nineteen and 20. Paul writes, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. <clears throat> For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So in our own attempts at righteousness before God, our mouths are stopped and we are laid bare. Therefore, our need is for the gospel of Christ and Him crucified. Christ's work on the cross most definitely puts the love of God on display. He gave His one and only Son to die our death, to pay our sentence, receiving the full wrath of His Father. But what we must see in addition to the love of God on display in the cross is that the righteousness of God revealed in His law is also on display. Simply stated, God's righteous law is transgressed and the penalty for such is what? Death. Therefore, in the death of Christ, we see God's love and God's righteousness on display. Listen, Jesus did not die because the law was bad and the Father needed something else instead. He did not die to rescue us from an unrighteous curse. The curse of sin is righteous in every way. He did not die to pacify our doubting minds or our angry hearts or our stubborn wills. These are all an aim that is set far too low in the death of Christ. Jesus died because God's honor was at stake. He died to rescue us from the righteous curse. He died to radically and thoroughly subdue us so that we may love Him with all of our hearts and minds and wills. He died to magnify the law and to make it honorable in our eyes. He died because by nature we are blind to the beauty of the law and blind to the beauty of the means by which God's chosen mediator would not merely justify sinners, but ultimately show forth the justification of God in order that we might come to love His leadership, to love His ways, and to even love God as our God. The constant note of the Bible from Genesis 3 all the way to the end of Revelation is that of reconciliation. 
When we live as unsaved sinners, we are under the law. We are judged by the rule of God's perfect law and are therefore in desperate need of reconciliation in Christ. Humanity is fallen, relationships are broken, and by nature we are at odds with God, we are at odds with one another. We have a a natural hatred for God and a natural love for self and an overwhelming propensity to get ahead at the disadvantage of others and to even use God Himself for our own selfish gain. So we were once alienated from God. We once even hated God. And we're not merely His passive enemies, but the Bible says that we were at enmity with Him. And this is all made clear when the law of God drives us to the cross of Christ. When we see that our transgression of the law resulted in the death of Christ. So here's the overwhelmingly incomprehensible reality of the gospel. The law makes clear that I am guilty. But Christ was not guilty and yet made himself to take my place of guilt and grant to me his right standing, his righteousness. Do you take that lightly? Does the blood of Christ mean so little to us that we want to receive the saving effects of Christ's death on a cross and yet live in complete disobedience to His constant call in our lives to holiness? The path to holiness is the grace of the gospel because only undeserved grace can truly melt and transform our hearts. The solution to a sinful life of immorality is not morality. The solution to immorality is the free grace of God. Grace so free that it will be misheard by some as a license to sin. Antinomianism. But the route that the New Testament takes is radical obedience. Why? Because one who has received the true justifying grace of God understands the reality and the use and the importance and the beauty of the law of God. So the call from the Bible and for all of us is that we are to pursue holiness. The Scriptures say without it, we won't see God. And let's pursue it centrally through enjoying the Gospel, the same Gospel that got us in and the same gospel that liberates us fresh every single day. And that's the final use of the law that we will look at in our paradigm. Law, gospel, and law. This is what causes us to continue on. In John fourteen fifteen, John records the words of Jesus when he writes, or he, he said, If you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. The Apostle Paul in the passage we looked at earlier in Romans 7.22 said, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. And in 1 John 5.3 we read, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. So how does all that work? At first we note that the law works to prove to us the very fact that we cannot keep the law. And now we look at the Scriptures calling us to keep God's commandment, to love His law. So the difference, you see, 
is based upon which side of the cross we stand on. For the unregenerate sinner, the law of God is a burdensome slave driver that is never completely pleased. But for the one who is justified by grace, for the one who understands and walks in the gospel, the law is a delight so that we proclaim with the psalmist, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. So the law not only draws us to the cross, but once we have been awakened to sin and made new in Christ, the law then becomes lovely to us. We desire to fulfill the law. We long to be obedient to the law as we strive for holiness, as we move toward Christ's likeness in every way. This is our sanctification. Once we are justified by the gospel, made right before God, we are then set on course to grow in our sanctification, the progressive work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian to bring about holiness. And we'll, end, we'll end on this, uh, on this idea of the use of the law. This is an absolutely vital part of our salvation. And this is what shows over the long haul that believers are, in fact, believers. Sanctification is the growth of fruit on the tree of faith. Charles Spurgeon once wrote that salvation would be a sadly incomplete affair if it did not deal with our ruined estate. He wrote this, We want to be purified as well as pardoned. Justification without sanctification would not be salvation at all. It would call the leper clean and leave him to die of his disease. It would forgive the rebellion and allow, allow the, uh, the rebel to remain an enemy of his king. It would remove the consequences but overlook the cause. And this would leave an endless and hopeless task before us. It would stop the stream for a time, but leave an open fountain of defilement, which would sooner or later break forth with increased power. So here's where we see this beautiful union of the gospel and the law of God. The Christian is justified completely in Christ alone. And then from that, the law will direct and oblige believers to walk in worthy union with Christ, making more and more clear God's holiness and our sinfulness. So the question really should be, how is it that the law of God and the gospel could conflict with one another? The very purpose of the gospel is to deliver men from lawlessness that we would obey God's law. So a right understanding is not do this or you will die, but rather die to yourself so that you are able to do this. Live unto Christ and in doing so we are freed up to walk in obedience. God is not looking for legal obedience. The scriptures make this clear. God is looking for sustained gospel obedience from our hearts. So how is this possible? This is our application. Lasting, persevering gospel obedience can only come from the grace which flows from Jesus and what He has already accomplished. Any obedience in our lives. Listen, any obedience not grounded in and motivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ is unsustainable and in the end we will fail. 
Apart from Christ, God's standard of holiness is unattainable from day one because our sinful natures at conception keep us from such. But in Christ, obedience is not only possible, but it actually happens. The true believer in Christ walks in a long journey of obedience to God's beautiful and life-giving law. The ability to obey comes from being moved and motivated by the completed work of Jesus on our behalf. The fuel to do good flows from what's already been done. So the law directs us. But in the end, we must recognize only the gospel can drive us. A pastor um, in Florida named uh, Tulian Chavision, he recently stated it like this. He wrote, The law is like a set of railroad tracks. The tracks provide no power for the train, but the train must stay on the tracks in order to function. The law never gives any power to do what it commands. Only the gospel has power, as it were, to move the train. So a true Christian obeys God's law not out of obligation or duty, but out of love. For Romans 13.10 says, love is the fulfillment of the law. Legalism and license are fundamentally self-centered and completely void of the gospel. They're not concerned with delighting in God or His law, but with self. The idea is either I keep the rules or I break the rules. But the gospel frees us from self-concern and it turns us outward. And we see that God's law is not constraining, but it's freeing. It is, as James writes, the law of liberty. It is a law that points us to and keeps us on track with Jesus. And with a thought from Romans 10.4, Paul says, Christ in the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In other words, the end, the goal, the point of the law is to drive us to Jesus. And when we get that, when we understand that, we begin to see that every command of Scripture in some way points us to Jesus who fulfills that command for us and in us. He is our righteousness. We no longer need to construct our own. We are unable to do what the law commands us, but Jesus did it for us. And because He lives in us by His Spirit, we are enabled to do it, not from obligation, but out of delight. So every command in Scripture points us to our own inadequacy, magnifies the good and holy nature of God, and causes us to look to Jesus as the one who forgives our disobedience and enables our obedience. In other words... The law drives us to Jesus, and Jesus frees us up to obey the law. It's a beautiful way that it works. And I want to pray that God would give us all a greater love for His law, to delight in His law, that we would walk in gospel obedience for His glory and for our joy. So let's pray together. Father, we desire to delight in Your law. We, delong, we long to, to delight in all that you have given us because it is good. It is right. It shows your glory. 
It shows your justice. It shows your holiness. It shows your righteousness. Father, we want to be vessels of these great truths. Help us, God. Help us, Lord, to see your law not as burdensome, but as delightful, as beautiful, as full of life, as full of hope, as full of love from you to us. Because you have graciously given us your law to show us our sin, to reveal to us our need of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to help us to walk in sanctification that we would be made more and more holy. Thank thank you, Lord, for giving us your law. May we behold it and love it and cherish it and walk in it for your glory and for our joy, not out of legal obedience, but out of gospel obedience to make your glory shine all the brighter to our world. Thank you, Lord. Do this work in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.